issue number three in the sci-fi ex-child superhero comic, Starlight. The only comic on Kickstarter with trans-dimensional spider wizards, space pirate cats, and featuring a variant cover by illustrating legend Lee Moyer. Hey, Stargazers, this is Travis, and I just wanted to thank you all for supporting Starlight. Brett, Greg, Tom, David, and I are all excited to bring you one more chapter in our seven-issue story. For those of you just joining us, Starlight is a story about two kids' superheroes who didn't make it. Once they became teens, they had to put away their capes and start normal lives, keeping their past and identities secret. Well, secret until a superhero conspiracy-loving journalist tried to out them live, just as space pirate cats came to kidnap them. The story is off the rails and close to our hearts, and we hope you love it as much as we loved creating it. We are offering some great rewards this time, including a variant cover by Lee Moyer and one-off hand-drawn covers by Brett. Thank you again for joining us, and we hope you stay with us until the end. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Mike Seibert Radio. I am your host, and we are raver superheroes trapped in space. We are talking about the third issue of Starlight. That Kickstarter campaign is going on now. Travis Webb uh, returns to tell us more about it, and we're going to talk about those uh, trans-dimensional spider wizards and the space pirate cats and and all that other cool stuff. Uh, uh, Travis, thanks for uh, returning to the show. How uh, how you doing? Good. We're doing really good, actually. Thank you. Well, yeah, I think that's actually a really good place to start because I would say you guys are doing pretty good. I'm looking at the the Kickstarter for issue three of Starlight, and the graphic says funded exclamation point. Nothing says you pledged. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, I, I, I am, I am in for. I, I was one of those day one backers, yeah. uh, so I, I, I got caught up in that hype. Uh, but so, yeah, I mean, to start with, I mean, so uh, you know, there's, uh, there's ten days to go in the campaign, and I thought we would just kind of start there as what's, um, what's going on with the project and uh, why folks should jump on if they haven't yet. I mean, the first thing is look at look at uh look look at Brett's new cover. I mean, look at this. Yeah, I I'm I'm glad you brought that up. I wanted to actually bring that uh right to the forefront because first of all, and actually, you know, I'm getting way way ahead of myself because this is the third time we've uh, uh we've done one of these shows. So it's the third issue of uh, Starlight for folks. Travis, real quick, for folks that are joining us for the first time and have no idea what uh what what these uh, rave kids are all about, uh, could you do the quick elevator pitch of what Starlight is uh, story wise, and then we can come back and and just drool all over this uh, uh, this uh, this uh, uh, Brett cover here because it's amazing. All right, so we got two siblings that were super childhood superheroes. So like you know. They were the the kid superheroes, the kid team up, you know, uh, a lot like when we were kids, we had things like Power Pack, Wiz Kids, stuff like that, right? And, you know, just like all of us when we were kids, right? I didn't elevator pitches, I just, just stopped. 
<laughs> no, you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Anyways, uh, when they when they hit teenage years, you know, everybody thinks somebody's going to become whatever they think they are when they're kids. So your friend who was a good writer, you think he's going to be a famous writer. Your friend is a good guitarist, he's going to be a famous guitarist. And so they were superheroes, so of course they're going to be famous superheroes. Well, when they hit high school, they just stopped. It ended. That stopped. They can't tell anyone who they were. They don't. They're no longer superheroes. They go to high school and they're just never going to amount to what everyone thought they were going to be when they were, you know, seven and ten. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's Sarah and Chris, the two characters you see on the front there. And um, really, the story is about them coming to terms with their childhood and having that fame and those superpowers and dealing with having once had those capabilities and going through that transition of being a teenager and having those realizations of reality, you don't always get to be who you think you're going to grow up to be. Not all of us become astronauts or the president. Right. Um, and uh, so that's a story we're telling. And uh, the guy that with the glasses is Roger. He is a reporter and he was out to figure out what happened. He does like in their world, they're superheroes. Like everybody's doing that nowadays, right? Everybody's doing oh, a world of superheroes. Uh, so in his, he is a classic kind of from that type of world where he had a little YouTube channel. He had once been a famous respected reporter. Now he only does superhero conspiracy. So he was hunting them down, trying to, to out them as, you know, teenagers now, which is really messed up, but that's what he does. And then uh, they get kidnapped by a trans, uh, by a space, a cat space pirates and transdimensional spider wizards and have to figure out how to save themselves. Uh, and they don't know why. You know, and so really the, the story is really kind of fun and intermixed on purpose. Uh, if I was to explain it as a, as a theme, everybody right now seems to be obsessed with doing what if superheroes are real? How do we take a realistic take to superheroes? Unfortunately, in my opinion, right, we lose some of the fun of what superhero stories are because everybody's wrapped up in superhero drama. And what if Superman was evil? Yeah. Um, or what if the Justice League, you know, was really corrupt? You know, mm-hmm. what if people have absolute powers when they absolutely try to take over the world and dominate us, even though they're the heroes, because they'd realize that was the only safe thing. I get that. I get all that. So uh, that's fine. There's a lot of people doing that and they're doing it well. At, I think some of them don't read modern superhero comics, by the way, because I feel like even modern superhero comics is stuff they think they're, they're, uh, they're uh writing a uh what's the word i'm looking for here help me mike ah comic that's supposed to be an analog of oh yeah i see well because one of the things i was going to say and i didn't want to interrupt you too much but like i i think that contemporary comics spend so much time on uh deconstruction you know kind of you know kind of deconstructing the genre that they kind of forget to do the genre for real right. like you know there that's been one of the criticisms of say like the Zack snyder justice league type of thing it's like you know it's it's it works as a deconstruction of the of the justice league but as just like a straightforward interpretation of what these heroes are supposed to be that's why it doesn't necessarily resonate with with portions of the audience and i think when we see things like um uh watchmen 
or um you know that what, what's that thing on on netflix now that that jupiter's legacy you know any, any of the mark millar stuff yeah. um you know any of that like superhero deconstruction stuff it it again i think i think it loses track of what a straightforward superhero story is supposed to be and then that's kind of what the audience gets conditioned to so like if we have like a, a steady diet of invincible and the boys and things like that you know you you again so something kind of gets lost in in the deconstruction i you know we've we've heard uh folks like alan moore uh maybe even frank miller to an extent kind of speaking with a bit of regret with how influential their works ended up being on modern superheroes in that things are so postmodern <laughs> they forget to be actual uh, uh superhero comics but i i digress that that was a really long way of uh, trying to find one word for you <laughs> it helps it helps because let's go back to the story we we now i'm taking a deconstructed superhero team and putting them into a situation that's still realistic like everyone's doing Mm -hmm. But in our story, we're going to force them to become be, go, go back to being a superhero story. Right. And that's how you get space pirate cats and transdimensional aliens. You know, the first way to do that for me, because I don't know anyone else who's done it yet. It probably does exist, especially on Kickstarter. And more than likely, I know the other writer who's done it. And I'll feel really bad, you know, kind of thing. But for me and Greg, to, to be honest, was uh, um, the idea was this is a deconstructed superhero story Mm -hmm. That everybody would think would is it fills a gap with the superhero kids, you know, what happens to childhood superheroes. But we took them away from all of that and put them in space and put them in a classic story that those two kids would have been in in the first place and then kept some of that realism. So, you know, it's it's really I try to make a hybrid model that brings us back to it still being whiz kids or power pack or whatever. Yeah. But with the damage that realism can add to these characters into their emotional state. So that that, that makes sense. And I, you know, I, it, it, it's a, it's a, it was a gamble. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would say after uh, three issues successfully funded on Kickstarter, you guys must be doing something right. Yeah. We definitely have a good core uh, fan uh, fan base called the stargazers. Yeah, we're trying, to keep that. we're trying to keep that that stargazers, you know, and letters to the editor stuff and things like that. You know, we're trying to keep all that. So, yeah, that that fan base has happened. We even started the comic out kind of fun. And it's as we grow out of the initial ish, first issue, you're going to see it turn harder and harder towards modern comic book, you know, yeah, darker and harder theme. In fact, in issue three, especially, I think you're going to say. Well, wait a minute. This is getting a little serious and it's still funny, but it's leaving that kid superhero comics and slowly moving to a more aggressive modern comic. Well, and that's a great point, too, because I was going to say, uh, especially issue one and into issue two, it does kind of it, it's light on its feet. It has has kind of a a a, a whimsy to it, and as uh, a, as the series goes along, because it's a seven issue series, and and this is the Kickstarter campaign for issue three, so this is kind of like the just before halfway turning point, arguably turning into uh, what is probably most probably the the second act of the of the overall um, story here. Yeah, and it, you know uh, to go into that. 
uh, Greg and I went in with an absolute number of issues and programmed the story beats into it mm -hmm. that we wanted to hit. So you can expect that soon there's a baseball bat coming. Now, I don't know what kind of lying assholes you've been dealing with. But I'm a man of my word. First impressions are important. I need you to know me. So let's uh, so so getting back to because I, I think that kind of brings us full circle for uh, folks that might be joining us and and don't know what the what the heck a starlight is and uh, we get caught up, but let's talk about briefly uh, because you you've uh, we've name dropped uh, your your collaborators you've named your collaborators <laughs> um, let's uh, let's let's talk about the other cool folks that that are working with you on uh, on starlight and then um, and then yeah we'll get into the new hotness. Uh, yeah, yeah. Let's uh, we'll, let's bring up let's bring up Greg, my writing partner. Yeah, because he couldn't be here with us, so <laughs> so we gotta <laughs> say nice things about him, I suppose. I, I love guess. Greg to death. Uh, Sorry, Greg. He so you know Greg Greg Smith does uh, a book with Oni called um, Junior Braves of the Apocalypse, mm -hmm. and uh, we met. Oh my God, eight years ago or something like that. Uh, him, me, and Mike Tanner. And stuff all became friends. Uh, I so m my story background real quick is I was a, a I was a real ghostwriter. Like those are real things. That's a real profession. You make very mm -hmm. good money doing it, and you get paid up front. But no one ever knows who you are because you're always in the wings. Um, and you sign a lot of NDAs. Uh, and I did a lot of that back then. I met them in that period, so I was always in cons in the right rooms with everybody. So everyone kind of knew. Oh, if you need help, you can ask Travis, and he'll fix some things for you because he has weird ideas. <laughs> like, how can I start the story as a deconstruction and move it back into an actual superhero comic? Um, and people are like, what? <laughs> you know, like, I'm going to try it. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, I bring that value. And Greg and I met, and Mike, and we just really all hit it off. Um, I was touring, I think, at that point with um, Zach Fisher, who is a artist over at Blizzard now, who actually drove to Blizzard for his interview at Blizzard. Um, who is most famous for doing cosplay designs uh, for like, uh, uh, what's her name? That whole, the super cosplay group, like Ricky. Uh, oh, oh my God. I might have said that wrong. Oh gosh. I can't remember all their names. Um, <laughs> all the famous cosplayers. She, he does them and he does their designs and they're amazing. And so, but before he did that, uh, we were working on some stuff. I was working on a Roman science fiction comic. Okay. So, you know, again, weird stories, right? Mm -hmm. I met them. And uh, a couple of years later, uh, you know, I'd always talk to Greg constantly. Uh, Greg and I became really good at talking about everything comics. Uh, when I started to, to write, when I, I got done with most of Starlight, not all of it, but I was like, and uh, being someone who's helped other people as a consultant and always steps in from the side, you get a different picture, a different view. And, um, you go, wow, how does everybody make the same mistakes? How does everybody get stuck in the same tropes? How does everybody get stuck in the same dialogue traps, right? And you think that when you're helping these people because everyone's doing it. So then you go write this book and you, you get there and you go, there they are. I did it too. I'm just as guilty. And the issue is, is now I, I have a hard time pulling back because I can't remember where the mistakes are. Okay. So there was a lot of repetition problems, which is really common in early drafts. 
uh, where you have characters repeating themselves several times with the story because you're worried they haven't emphasized it enough. Things like just really gunky stuff that I was really embarrassed by. And it's not a horror. It's it's fun. And I said, well, I'm going to call Greg. And I called Greg. He came in and he just like, hey, man, at the end, these are the things we need. These are the beats we need to fix. You know, these are the things. And he just ripped the whole comic book part with me. We kind of take took it the whole series apart. We added an additional issue. And then we went through and just killed a bunch of babies. Uh, that's a writer's term. Uh, if you guys know what that means. I, means, I was going to say, my God. Yeah. Uh, uh, babies is um, uh, things you love because they're so uh, close to your heart that really don't belong there for the audience. And sure. uh, it's hard on writers. And it is absolutely when you do that for someone else, it's a way to make them hate you and say, nope, 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 nope. But I can tell you right now, killing babies will make you a better writer, especially when it's coming from the outside view of someone who knows what to look for. Uh, I always say my favorite saying is writers write, editors edit. Mm-hmm. And any good writer becomes great with a great editor. It's Brilliant. Great. Yeah. Um, so that was when Greg came in. Now, oh, shoot. How did I start? Let's talk about Brett. Yeah. Brett the legend, right? So if your audience doesn't know, our artist is uh, Brett Rodelli, And he is most known for being the co-creator of the Surrogates graphic novel and series, which became a movie. And it was... Bruce Willis's last big film. Uh, I, I think it was even bigger than Red. It, it was huge. It was a Disney-backed Merrimax yeah. production. It was a monster blockbuster. And that's Brett's most famous gig. He was also the artist for the comic book series that led up to Southland Tales. Right. Right. Uh, he worked on The Beauty. Um, he's worked on a lot of Philip K. Dick stuff. Uh, he is a legend. He was one of the first artists to make that kind of uh, – wet watercolor rusty pool style popular almost 20 years ago that was kind of something he brought to the table uh for marvel and everybody else so that's a cool way to describe it i never thought of it that way but yeah you're absolutely right yeah you know it's not in starlight that right yeah so if you look at brett's previous art you won't see anything that looks like starlight and that's that was part of a decision-making process between the three of us. Starlet's meant to look and reflect rave colors right down to the ships, everything about it, because from a art perspective, uh, because of the character Sarah being kind of always bright and colorful, mm-hmm. we wanted to make her world as dark as it gets still be from the perspective of someone who likes bright and colorful. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and Brett, Brett bought, brought it. He actually changed his coloring technique for starlight and it's actually being used on other comics he's picked up several gigs because of starlight as a colorist they go we saw what we did in issue one that's a true story they they like the starlight stuff and he's now doing some really big comics now for other studios um i don't know if i'm allowed to talk about that so it's his gig yeah <laughs> but i was you know, gonna say <laughs> you Brett, you'll see that he's done some other stuff that looks like starlight as a colorist coloring and uh, i feel like and you'd have to ask Brett personally, but that's partially was that huge change in coloring he he did when he revolutionized his own approach. Mm-hmm. I I would say that his style is evolving even further as the story of Starlight goes on. You look look at the first two covers compared to this cover that we're looking at for issue three, and it's um it, there there's 
I'm I'm not sure what he's doing different. I I would have to ask him about it. But there, tell you. Oh, tell me because like it it uh it blew my hair back. I was like, I mean, I I couldn't tell if it was like somebody doing um a Brett homage there or what <laughs> was. I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure that's a Brett cover. But but yeah, so let's let's start there. Let's let's talk about this uh cover we've been looking at because it is gorgeous and amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Brett, uh, Brett's girlfriend, uh, they had an anniversary coming, and Brett has been using the same Mac for all of his comic book work for over 10 years, you know, with a beat up old copy of Adobe, right? Okay. So he just got a pro uh, tablet, Apple tablet, with the pencil, Apple Pencil and Procreate. And this is a result of him altering around Procreate. Oh, my goodness. And having just a, a lot more power with that little tablet than he ever had with his 10 year old Mac. Cause yeah, I mean, I'm just looking at the, uh, the details there. I mean, it, it's, um, again, the style is the same, but there there's, there's a depth and texture to it that, that is a little new. I, I love it. Yeah. It, it's definitely the starlight style and it makes me my heart. Warm, uh, whenever I see it. And, uh, when we go, we go down the sample pages, we can talk mm-hmm. a little bit about some of the influences on, the backgrounds and stuff that he brought to the table instruction. Uh, Cause sure. he, really, he really does some amazing stuff. Um, but should we talk about new members of the team? Yes, absolutely. All right. So first real quick, David Mayer is now our editor full time. Mm-hmm. And David was Greg's intern who really wants to be an editor. In comedy. Okay. So he is amazing. He is diligent. Uh, he works at a comic book store. Um, it is, he went to school, uh, he has his degree, uh, he teaches at college now, um, and uh, he really loves comic books. I mean, he knows a bit. Um, we, so we, we were having a, um, a, we were at a con together, and I, I looked over at Greg, and I said, you know, we should just make David the editor, because we're a small little operation yeah. for Kickstarter, and that would give him a credit that he could use to move forward. So he, we, you know, we had to teach him a couple things uh, about the way the scripts work because he didn't have a lot of insight there yet. Uh, and the way we work scripts, because uh, we write kind of a unique way for, because we're writing, we're, we always write to the artists, mm-hmm. write to the artists, so we write a script to Brett. We had to get him grasped around that concept. And he has just really flourished. He went back and fixed a bunch of stuff. And now we have a meeting uh, before we send the script to Brett every time where he red lines and walks us through every little issue, every little description, every little detail and tries to correct these things. So it'll breathe better when it gets to Brett and we'll have less confusion uh, when we get the art back from Brett. And uh, the other thing we did, which is really exciting is I don't know if you know who Danny finger off is. I, I I've heard the name, but it's um, yeah, just, uh, just on the tip of my tongue. It's like, where do I know that from? There it is. During the Silver Age, one of the uh, one of the great gods. He just wrote a, a, a autobiography. Oh, sorry, he wrote a biography of Stan Lee that's been you know just doing really well. He, he when you go to uh, cons, it's a big deal to see Danny there. He's usually a big powerhouse guest. Okay. Um, and he offered a class uh, on comic book editing. Now, there's not a lot of classes out there in comic book editing. And so we used money from the last Kickstarter campaign to pay for David to go to Danny Fingeroff's class on comic book. Oh, nice. Yeah. So the next, from this point on, it's going to have a little bit of that, that flair from Danny, hopefully into, into, into David and into, into Starlight. 
That's our variant cover from Lee Moyer, the legend himself. So for your fans who are not familiar, Lee Moyer is a world-renowned illustrator. Like, uh, he is a really big catch for anyone. Um, uh, he worked on Dungeons & Dragons for a very long time. He was the director of art over at EA for a while, EA Games. Um, I mean, if you scroll down, you can see his huge resume. And then I... So I posted everything he sent me, and then he came back. And he's like, you, "You didn't have to post my whole thing." Dude. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> yeah, I mean, look at this. It just, it just, it just goes. Corey Amos like cover. <laughs> then work for Neil Gaiman. He's like yeah. just, just crazy. 20th Century Fox, Sony, Paramount, Discovery Channel, Hasbro. <laughs> it's just, just a monster illustrator. He worked at the Smithsonian. Um, I mean, just huge and. Uh, I, I met Lee many years ago at a con, and uh, he we just became good friends. Uh, I like him so much. We, we see each other cons. We see each other outside of cons, which is actually rare in this industry to see people that you know at cons, outside of cons. Yeah. So I was like, look, Lee, because he he likes Starlight. He always thought it was a good concept before even before we decided to publish it. He was always like, hey, what about that one story you had? And I was always like, I don't know if I want to do about ravers because I'm kind of come from a rave background. I feel like I'm leaning on something, but it is a cool story. Um, uh, so I have Leah's like, hey, do you want to do a variant? And he's like, <laughs> I, I just never seen him do a variant. He might have done it. I'll, I'll ask him sometime. But yeah, like, do you want to do a variant for Starlight? And he's like, yes. And we to be a little bit more open. Lee has been helping us here and there as setting back red lines for us on certain things on the comp book itself. Nice. So not unofficially. And I'm, if he hears this and he says, Travis told you not to tell anyone, I'm going to feel really bad. He's, you know, it's more of a, you know, a thing like, Hey Lee, can you look at this? And you're like, Oh yeah, yeah. fix this, this, and this, this here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and so I was like, Lee, do you just want to do a variant for us? And he's like, yeah, I'll do a variant. So he did that variant cover for us. And what that variant cover is, is actually a mix of Lee and Greg and I'm not sorry, Brett, and I can't remember who did what. I feel bad. okay. Well, I I was gonna say it's it, it's an incredibly striking image. I I love the coloring, and I even like the uh, um, the uh, the explosion burst. It's it's very GI Joe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so so that definitely uh, uh, tickles some buttons for me. But yeah, no, I, I it, it's an incredible piece. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it, it's all Lee's concept. I remember that because that was what he pitched to me, and I was like. Sounds awesome to me. And then it was really, I think, fun for uh, Brett. He could probably talk more about this sometime, but uh, to, to get a chance to work with Lee directly. Yeah. You know, that's always a big deal for artists to do stuff with other artists, especially artists they like. So then Lee comes back and says, hey, you know, the lettering on Starlight's not my favorite. Oh. Like, <laughs> and he goes, because we had some other people bring up lettering too. Brett uses a very distinct way of lettering. I wish we had an example um, somewhere. Mm. I don't think you do. Uh, but anyway, so Brett uses uh, Brett doesn't uh, stroke his bubbles, right? And that drives people nuts. And there's a reason for it. It's a European style to use round bubbles with no stroke. Um, and that's uh, it's because he doesn't want the words to take away from the imagery does that make sense yeah i think so uh that's that's his that's his thing he likes the round absolute round bubbles he doesn't like to make them all wobblies and stuff and he likes zero stroke so it's very flat against the art and doesn't and um 
uh, you know, I think it looks fine, but uh, we got yeah. brought it up, especially other Kickstarter. You know, I'll tell you right now, the Kickstarter community, the other creators have no problem saying, hey, you're doing this wrong. Here's a link to how to do it right. And you're like, okay, okay. I don't make that choice. That's like I'm my gig. I'm just the writer. <laughs> it, yeah, like, exactly. An artist who's like world renowned and famous and be like, hey, man, this guy from Kickstarter sent me a link on how to do lettering. He wants me to give you. I was like, I'm not doing it. You know, that's too funny. Uh, but uh, that's a little inside story. But, um, uh, you know, it's fine. I mean, that's good because actually the, that feedback still goes, okay, well, we know that people think that the lettering is a little bit off. Um, so when Lee said it, though, now you have a monster, you know, kind of come in and say, hey, man, um, lettering's fine, but I'm friends with this one guy, and he actually likes your comic a lot. And he also kind of mentioned it and thinks he could help you out because he likes the series. So that is when Lee connected us to uh, Tom Orzenchowski. So if you want to scroll down, look who Tom Orzenchowski is. Yeah. A further, a further. Oh, team. Oh, team. So he's an actual team member now, by the way, Tom. Oh, nice. So, you know, Lee is a guest who also helps us on the side. But Tom Orzentowski is now our letterer. There we go. He is the most famous letterer probably in comic book history at this point. Sure. Uh, he's in the Guinness Book of World Records. Uh, he has been lettering for Spawn since it started. And I think he still is. Um, yeah, he he is such another huge get for us. You know, um, and he's like, yeah, I'd love to letter this. I was like, okay, well, you're hired. Uh, we'll find a way. <laughs> right, right. You know, um, and so, you know, that put together just, that's just a really fun team. Oh, let's look at David. See what he, yeah. He like. Scroll down a little bit. I love it. There's our little David. Oh. <laughs> makes me so happy. I want him to be a great, great, famous editor someday. Even if my career kind of... <laughs> stalls at some point i'd like to see right. at a big at one of the big dogs someday because he really just brings so much to the table for us you know even at where he's at you know he doesn't have like 20 million or anything like that right but he's been able to, to to grab a lot of that and and bring it to the table because he goes out and researches constantly mm -hmm. on how to how to do better comics well and, and i think okay I, I i think a lot of it is like you know the capacity to learn also you know, and and that uh, that youthful enthusiasm that that a lot of us wish we had more of sometimes. <laughs> he, you know, and he likes Starlight so much. And I just, yeah, uh, I'm probably going to use him for another book here coming up. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, I think I'll try to use David as much as I can, because I think he also this is going to sound weird. But like I said, editors edit and great editors make good writers. Great. Right. Right. Yeah. I think David gets me. And I have never been able to say that before because when I write for other people, I'm mimicking their voice and the editors usually don't even notice I was there. They can't tell my stuff from the, and that's good. That's actually a really good thing. Right. But when I write for myself, yeah. I'm doing, I try to do such weird, I'm not writing for writer's perspective. I'm just trying to write something that feels more like the story that I'm able to play back in my head. Mm -hmm. than I'm trying to write a story. I, it's kind of hard to explain. And well, I think I, I think I understand because like um, a lot of writers have very distinctive 
narrative voice. Yeah. And sometimes like, uh, like, uh, like, our, our our buddy Nick put uh, in the comments, you know, talking about the Chris Claremont X-Men run. And, and it just made me think that like, for example, like Chris Claremont has a very distinctive narrative voice. And like for him to try to uh, not be Chris Claremont, it just, it just wouldn't quite work. It's, it's very, very distinctive. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, Chris Claremont needs to find an editor. Yeah. Might be Danny Fingeroff, actually. But anyways, um, right. uh, that, you know, knows his voice, but knows how to control him in a way. Right. You know, an example I always use of people is Stephen King. Sure. Um, when he switches editors around the time of the stand, there is a definite difference in how good his quality is. And I need to stop there because I don't want to talk down about Stephen King. <laughs> I understand. The bookstore almost hit me. So, um, I mean, she just lost her temper. Um so I was like, well, Stephen King kind of got weak after a couple of years, like late 80s, early, especially in the 90s. It felt like they took the leash off him and he kind of needed someone to come back and fix the, the long version of the stand is not good. I'm sorry, guys. The, the original release is a better story because his babies get killed. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, and, and it's tighter. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, there's there's something to be said for that in, in a in a world where we have four hour Snyder cuts. I, I think brevity is uh, is not necessarily um, a bad thing. So so we're we're just going to get all the way heck off of that before everybody starts coming after the both of us. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't need, I don't need to be canceled for talking bad about Mr. Snyder. <laughs> right exactly dude th those snyder bros are so bad i mean they will come after you <laughs> uh, but but they are fun to provoke though so yeah. uh but anyway so so uh so that's that's the team and it's it's a different team than what you guys started with i i was going through um, my old shows and realized that it was right around this time last year that we first started talking about the first campaign for the uh, first issue of Starlight. And that just it, it, it feels like a lifetime ago, like like an actual lifetime in terms of like what's happening in the world and what's, uh, um, you know, just what what's been going on. It just it just feels like such a different landscape now than uh than it was then it is it is i, I will tell you it's easier because i don't have covid anymore right <laughs> well and that and that was the thing too and i i, I if this is a uh, uh, too much information too personal just let me know and I'll, I'll back off of it but i i i remember distinctly when we were recording or, or maybe it was before uh before we started recording i don't i don't remember which but it was something to the effect of like it was I was maybe 40 minutes into the conversation. I was like, wait a sec. Does Travis actually have it? Uh, because like, I think you had it while we yeah. were, while we were talking there. And then if, if I'm not mistaken, you done got it again later. Yeah. My so, yeah. So like, I mean, to, to this day, you're still the only person I know personally that that's had it twice, but I think you were the first person that I talked to back then that even had it because even then it was still kind of like, yeah. you know, you know, it's, it's the boogeyman or, you know, something new and different now. Now I, I think I probably know more folks that never got it than, 
than did have it at this point, just kind of the way things go. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's just, um, it's, it's a different world. So I, I thought, what we would talk about is maybe like what the the difference is between this Kickstarter for issue number three uh, compared with uh, the the previous campaigns and what what makes this one uh, different from the others. Yeah, I want to address the thing with Nick real quick though. He just has a really good. Question. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. He's got a great question there. When he, uh, will any of the guest cover artists do any interiors? Uh, Nick, that that's unlikely. Um, Brett's scheduled out, and the story's already built and done. Um, however, there is talk, and I don't, I don't want to set up too much expectation of doing a mini comic with a guest artist, Ooh. of uh, kind of a throwback to show what they were like as the uh, the Ultra Kids uh, when they were kids. So we we've talked a little bit about that, and I did approach an artist recently about maybe doing it, but it's. It's really up in the air, and if we do that, it will likely be something where it's not just a, des- a guest interiors. It's also going to be a guest writer because it's. I, I kind of want to see what someone else does with that. Uh, I honestly think I'm a little too tainted to write them as the Ultra Kids at this point because I've had them as adults only. Yeah, it's so weird. Characters are so weird for me. I don't. I talk to other writers. Not everyone's like this, but <laughs> it, once the characters are in my head, they kind of run off and do their own thing, right? Yeah. Like, put them in scenarios and then they run off. Like sometimes when I was writing this for a while, I couldn't get the Sarah character at the time and that was driving me nuts. I was like, why isn't Sarah, you know, um, in my story. Right. And uh, it's just where I get, I close my eyes. I just kind of wander off and just let the movie play. Um, I don't know if I could get myself to write them as the ultra kids. First of all, it's not a genre I've ever done before. Second, I just know these characters as adults. I don't know them as kids. So if we did something like that, Nick, I think we would probably do a mini with them as kids with both a guest artist and a guest writer. And I think that'd be a lot of, and if I get the people I want, it'll be jaw dropping. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the cool part about creating your own sandbox, your own universe. It's like, you know, once, once you've established it, get it going then you can hand it off to other folks that are maybe a little bit outside of the family just to see what they do with it. And that's, uh, I, I would imagine as a creator, that would be as exhilarating as it is terrifying a prospect. Uh, it is, you know, but I, I just, just, let's just be fun here. Cause we're on a show that something that would never happen. Yeah. But I, I'd love to see what Gail would do. Sure. I think Gail would just have a really good time with Chris, Sarah and Ron, you know, um, uh, so, I mean, that's, that's someone I'd love to, see, uh, do something. I don't know, you know, like there's a, not ever going to happen, but those kind of things, those, there's a couple of writers out there. I'm like, Hey man, you want to take on Chris, Sarah and Roger and see what you can do with them? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, so, um, let me get Nick some, yeah. Gail some. Yeah. Up. Yeah. Sorry, Nick. Um, and, uh, so additional backside. So on the, uh, collected edition, like the trade is what you're asking about, Nick. I hope you mean the trade, which is the graphic novel later. I don't know yet what we're doing with that. Um, one of the things about Starlight was that it almost got picked up by a publisher initially. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. So, and there is still a door open as far as we know to come back to them when the series is complete to release the trade through a major publisher, but oh. or might have closed by then. We're still four issues away. 
Right. So the door could close or has closed. We just don't, we haven't contacted them in a long time. So that there is an option to that. And there's also some other pipelines that we weren't available when we know, we didn't know were available to us when we started Kickstarter that we're learning from other Kickstarter people uh, to do the trade. Trades are an iffy thing. Um, I don't, you know, that's going to be a whole new uh, ball of worms if we do a trade through a Kickstarter. So, Nick, I'm not 100% sure. I mean, I'm not opposed to it. And it's very likely that could still happen. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, by the time we get through issue seven, I think for me as a creator, I would like to step on to the next floppy project, maybe through Kickstarter or whatever, and yeah. have the trade thing kind of handed off to somebody else, even if they did it through Kickstarter rather than through us. So we could focus on our next. Right. Well, and keeping in mind that on the current trajectory, that's over a year from now. Yeah. So, and, you know, we, we were just talking a little bit how the world has changed in one year. Um, how's the world going to change in another year? So, I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of daylight between now and then. So I, I think it's just best to kind of uh, keep focused on the individual issues and, and just uh, uh, keep going on the, on the project as it goes. Um, so, uh, so Nick did write uh, an additional comment. Would you guys ever do a hardcover version of a single issue like what Terry Dodson has done with uh, two of his uh, creator owned uh, comics like Adventure Man? That, that's cool. I didn't realize that, uh, that Terry Dodson was doing that. That's yeah, let, me, uh, let me check to see how he did that. Let me hit up Terry Dodson. I'll, I'll yeah. him on Kickstarter after the show. Uh, Nick, um, I don't know how I'd tell you later, but I mean, if Terry Dotson found a way to do it well, let's uh, I'll, I'll do it. I I'm not. A, I'm always looking for new ways to reward our backers, right? Uh, which is a huge challenge. Um, other than rewards, um, yeah, rewards are always. Uh, ooh, what are we giving away here, guys? Uh, <laughs> what's gonna make them happy? What's gonna feel original? But at the same yeah. time, you also kind of do gotta do the expected things. That was a valuable lesson. Like, don't mess up. You have to have bookmarks. Bookmarks. Come on. Oh, man. <laughs> I got so much flack for not having bookmarks. All right. What, how many podcasts about a movie deal? Let's say Netflix. Uh, you know, that does come up. Uh, I came up with, the, with another podcast. I'm not going to shout out other podcasts on your podcast. Oh, that's fine. I mean, it's, oh, it's Grand it's, Geek it's, Gathering. I went off on a whole es escapade yeah. of how it would make a really great rave opera animated film. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I don't know how to do a rave opera, but it would be like electronic ravey music with singing in space and yeah. like rock and roll or something. Uh, I think that would be awesome. I think Netflix is exactly where that belongs. So if you know anyone at Netflix, anybody, tell them I want to do a rave opera animated film about Starlight. I'm 100% on board. Nice. So in kind of the 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 realm of things that we can't talk about, but, um, you know, we we mentioned uh, Brett's uh, pedigree, having worked on a, a couple projects that have gone on to become other projects. Um, have there been any kind of uh, conversations or inklings or thoughts of what potentially the future of Starlight could be? You know, I'm going to be honest. So let's, 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 let's be fair. Um, Kickstarter is still in many ways treated by other professionals like a vanity press. 
I, I hate hmm. saying that because if you're from the old publishing guard, Vanity Press was considered vanity. Right? Yeah, you weren't literally to get yeah. really published. So you're making your own book and then kind of scamming your readers because you didn't really have that talent. That was kind of an attitude for many years. And yeah. I think with some of the industry, entertainment industry, uh, a lot, and I'm probably going to get bashed by other Kickstarter people, but, and I, and I can be wrong here. Let's, let's be honest. I could be wrong. I'm not going to tell you that I'm right. Okay. But I think there might still be a bit of that feeling from other publishing companies and, um, you know, things like Netflix and stuff where they're like, yeah, it's great. Cute. You have Vanity Press on Kickstarter. And there's not as there's not as much momentum at that point when there's so much available to them from major publishers who have a whole production pipeline set up to the studios already. I mean, you guys may not know this, but when I was working down in Hollywood, there's literally pipelines between almost every major publisher directly into every major studio through oh. a management company and an agency who is bundling them together. Like if you're with say WME, which is William Morris Endeavor, you're also probably tied to, you know, I don't want to say what publishing company, sure. direct line and to this management company. And then the management company goes, well, we have a director, we have, uh, we can assign, you know, we got this book from that publisher and then the agency can work out the deals and they try to package that all together. So it's like, I think this is public knowledge, but like CAA, Warner Brothers and DC have a package pipeline together. Yeah. So if you do a project for DC, it gets it can get put into a package to be a deliverable as a film for them to release through one of the Warner Brothers channels. Um, and at this time, to my knowledge, that has not been established yet with Kickstarter projects. And I don't know. I mean, the closest thing I can tell you that's happening with that is Boom Studios with Keanu Reeves. And that's because Keanu Reeves is attached to it. And it's kind of feeling for the first time like that could be a thing. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, that's a thing where it goes back to kind of the old guard of it's a major publisher now doing it with a major name package attached to it, attached to Kickstarter, where I don't know if that opportunity does or can exist for one of the guys like me and my team who don't have any of those pipelines established in other areas through Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? I think so. Um, because, yeah, it's like I, I think the takeaway there is that um, – everybody's got hands in somebody else's pockets, that, that kind of thing, just in right. terms of like those direct pipelines. Now, one thing I did want to address before I, I ask you a little more about uh, Kickstarter, because we kind of wanted to talk about that in terms of like lessons learned and advice given and, and things like that is, um, um, Oh, I lo I lost my train of thought. <laughs> okay. Post. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what it was. Uh, so, uh, are you guys thinking of something like uh, Mark Miller's Miller World line? Yeah, very much so. Multiple stories with different artists, all packaged together and delivered to Netflix as potential property. Yeah, exactly that. 
exactly that. In fact, um, how many Miller World properties were optioned as films before a single issue even came out? Yeah. Um, like I, I'm, I, I think they're still working on Nemesis as a project. Um, you know, obviously, a, a Jupiter's Legacy just, uh, just dropped, and, and yeah, I think, I think issue one of wanted came out with a sticker that said soon to be a major motion picture. So it's like that, that, that's, that's already, um, that's already there in, uh, in the pipeline. Um, I, I remembered the thing I was, I was going to, um, ask you about, or, or, or at least mention is, I don't know if me personally, I, I l- look at, kickstarter as vanity publishing it's not not, and and because like i okay so i've I've got a couple buddies that are you know trying to like independently publish novels and things like that and they've they've told me stories about how publishing houses will come to them and say well you can pay us we'll publish the book but everything is on you and and that and that to me feels more like kind of institutionalized uh, vanity publishing more so than something like say Kickstarter where I feel and maybe just dipping into hyperbole because I support so many of my friends using this platform is that it really is a community-based type of platform where it's you have that one-to-one interaction with your audience where you can cultivate community much like you know like we we've seen it with the stargazers you know it's a it's it's become a tight-knit base of community and so yeah i just uh um I, I guess I just wanted to address that before before we uh, before we got too much deeper into um, uh, the the inner workings of Kickstarter and lessons learned because yeah I think I I, I think folks that that dismiss Kickstarter based projects as as vanity is uh, is reductive. I hundred percent agree with you, but I also think that hurdle exists because they don't understand what Kickstarter is. Yeah, that that's fair. That's fair. So, well, let's let's uh, uh, philosophize then about what uh, what Kickstarter is. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's designed um, around. It's not really designed for what we're doing with it right now, and that's that's the thing that's been coming up um, with Kickstarter. Uh, they, I don't think they conceived the idea of serial floppy creators working as tiny publishing houses through them. So there are some definite clunkinesses to it. Uh, one thing I've been talking about with other creators that do serials, you know, is that uh, it doesn't, it doesn't do well because we have something that uh, we've decided as a group in my group of people I'm working with, that is your pool, your backer pool, your core backer pool. And you build that pool right before issue one, Right. So you can kind of see this with Starlights 1, 2, and 3. We had months of building and growing before we hit issue 1. So issue 1 happens. Well, then when issue 2 happens, I end up spending most of my time actually trying to address my pool from issue 1, my my fan base, and to get them to come to issue 2 because the the Kickstarters are not connected because that's not how Kickstarter works. See, Kickstarter has no way for me to make a serial series of events right. that can connect to each other and connect the fan base. In fact, we actually can create burn 
because I'm chasing my old fan base every time. So I'll go and I'll say issue one and I'll send all those backers an email the same day I also do an update for my comic, but I'll also back all my two guys saying, hey guys, can you come back? Well, unfortunately, like Mike, you've probably seen this as a backer through all three. You'll see three emails from me in the yes. same <laughs> within an hour. And two of them are just me begging the previous audience. I know you're still there. Can you come back? Right. You know, and there's no way to fix that. There's ways to supplement that. Uh, if I had a better mailing list and I understood how to do those better, right, I could do that. But that's me leaving this platform, learning another platform, and then constantly working on getting you guys to leave this platform to adopt this other platform at the same time. Right. And right. it's a lot of gears to move. And again, now I've created another burn point because now that's during this point of adoption of my mailing list by you guys. Now, Mike, you might get issue one, issue two, issue three, and my mailing list. And right. you're seeing my ads and you're seeing my social media. And so, and, and you've already backed me. Mm-hmm. And that creates a burn problem for us in an effort just to keep that pool which takes away for our ability to grow probably for the first two thirds of the campaign. So a lot of people say there's a flat point in a campaign. So you go up and then you go flat and then you go up again right at the end, right? That's, that's the yeah. average Kickstarter, you know, line. Um, I don't think the flat point is as much of a flat point as people think. I think it's your growth period. That's the period where you've gotten your original core pool settled and once it flattens out, that's a sign that you can now go to working towards growth, working to getting that new, those new people in. So that's when you should change your language to come join us, come join us. And the language to your previous backers to, hey, tell your friends to join us instead of telling them to come join us to begin with. That's okay. That last kick, you know, that last up because all the new people finally jumping in that you've been kind of cultivating for the last two weeks. Gotcha. And the goal, in my opinion, would be you're going to hit – once you go up again, you have another flat point, right, between campaigns. How do I continue to grow between those two point campaigns? Because Kickstarter has no way for me to use it as a tool to continue to address that audience. Now, uh, for some of the bigger guys, and I'm kind of slowly getting to that, that phase – you know, again, we can use third-party tools. We communicate each other. We've been learning from each other ways to supplement Kickstarter's drop-off right there, right? But if you're an indie coming in on the first time, you know, and you're doing your first comic, you know, I got lucky, but 90% of the people that come in, they can get maybe one or $2,000 worth of backing, mm-hmm. and they'll never really get – they'll successfully fund at one to 2000 maybe get the 4000 But until you figure out how to fix those – that growth problem, you figure out the third party tools like, you know, and t- things like that, doing podcasts, you figure those things yeah, out, yeah. Figure it out, right? You're going to hold around 2000 on every campaign you do. You'll never see your growth from your original core that you created before that first camp, first campaign. And I think that that is the biggest issue with using Kickstarter as a platform for a serial comic. Interesting. Well, you know, and, and that was 
part of the reason why I wanted to kind of uh, take a sec and dig into it because folks that listen to my show hear from several creators that use Kickstarter. And I would imagine that several of them have been inspired to do their own Kickstarter things. I, I think, I think it's a really cool program, but I think it's also important to kind of get into a little bit of the minutia of why things work. So I, I think that's a, uh, uh, that's valuable insight there to uh, to share with folks. Yeah, anything you can do right now to supplement and continue to grow between Kickstarters is what you really need to focus on. And then when your campaign starts, for me and for almost everyone I've talked to, you you're going to spend that first clunk, that first big jump is literally just your pool coming back that you've already created. Right. Right. I mean, or even like, you know, uh, folks like me, you know, I, I backed on day one and I got caught in the momentum of like, oh, hey, you know, that's, uh, you know, get in on some uh, deals and discounts and momentum and, and feeling um, a part of it. Um, I want to go uh, to some of the uh, other questions that Nick had asked. He, he's asking about uh, hashtagging and social media. Um, and one thing I would say about the, the Starlight campaigns throughout is that um, not only is the social media game strong, but it's it, it's measurables and deliverables that like, I don't know if it's just subconsciously the way people think and hear uh, things where it's like, if there's like an achievable goal, that gives me as an audience member something to buy in on. In this case, literally, but uh, figuratively as well. Like, you know, I, I invest in the, again, figuratively and literally. I got to find a different set of words because, like, basically, like, it's it's enthusiasm for the campaign and sharing in those victories. Like, oh, hey, let's, you know, let's, uh, let's get these guys over X amount of... Um, uh, followers or not followers, uh, backers, uh, you know, let's, let's get to X amount of backers or let's get to X amount of dollars pledged, you know, that, that kind of thing. It, it, it becomes inclusive. Yeah. Uh, you know, the social media game is the only game we have right now, <laughs> which is, which is rough for me because I'm actually uh, a little better at cons and sure. uh, fans live than I am at, uh, the social media game. I actually, I have a love hate relationship. I think you've probably known it now because you're an actual friend on my Facebook and not just a follower. And right. Right. I have my, my, Oh my God, what's wrong with humanity moments. <laughs> and then I feel bad. And I, and I went, oh, I'm sorry. I posted that this morning and I feel terrible. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, um, and it sucks because the, I, I, the big lesson of social media is this, the key term is social. If you don't want people to comment and be social with what you say, don't post it. Yeah. End game. So when people post things like I'm posting this and I don't want to hear any comments, well, then you're not using social media. You're just barking and you're going to yeah. get comments because you just invited them and it's social media and social. So uh, that, you know, it's a, it's a hard thing to learn because especially when it's your only outlet to building and growing a fan base um, because you want to juggle it. You, you, I do have friends on my social media that I want to entertain with some fun posts but I also have fans who, if I say the wrong thing, and this happened to me one time, and I actually it was someone very famous hit me up and was like, dude, you have fans. You can't make jokes like that. End of story. Mm. You know, you yeah. they think that you know something inside about what you made a joke about and you just hurt them. 
you know, I made a yeah. Star Wars joke. And because at that time, especially I was still working in Hollywood, uh, one of some people got really upset and it was so such a stupid, unbelievable thing to say that I didn't think anyone could take it serious. But from right. the perspective of some fans who knew I was working in Hollywood at the time, uh, they took it seriously and got really upset. And so someone very famous had me said, this is a, for your first big lesson of having fans. You can't make jokes that can be perceived as real, even if they seem far-fetched. Yeah. You. you know, that's social media. Yeah. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Well, and, and especially kind of in the in the culture that we're in. I mean, any one of us at any given time is one tweet away from being canceled. Yeah. Um, so and I'd like to cancel the word cancel. It just drives me nuts. Yeah, I I agree. Um, yeah, it's uh, you know, I and I've I've heard the the replacement term consequence culture being thrown around, and I don't know if I necessarily like that either. Um, I do think that folks should be accountable for what they say and do. Um, I also think that. Uh, quick to judge outrage is a thing as well. And there's a, there's a balance that I know I don't know where it is. And I think a lot of folks out there also kind of had that, that, that similar uh, confusion. Um, But yeah, I, I, I agree with you, Travis, in terms of like, you know, uh, a social, just, uh, you know, don't put anything out there that you wouldn't want somebody to interact with i i've I've put it even more simply than that it's like don't don't tweet something that you wouldn't say around somebody yeah stranger exactly exactly it's like so yeah just uh yeah just you know be 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 good humans out on out on the socials um oh let's see so yeah thing they are pretty good yeah uh, necessary um i i forget to do them but Greg keeps on my case and they, they do make a difference, especially if you're consistent. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like, you, you got to think of it like a, like a machine, like a wheel, you got to feed the wheel. And yeah, once, once you stop feeding it, the wheel kind of, um, kind of stops. Um, Nick asked an interesting question. I wanted to, um, get back to, um, do, uh, do you, the creators get the full issues in hand before launching the Kickstarter or do you, uh, get the issues after the campaign has been funded like everyone else? So I thought maybe we could use that to kind of talk about just kind of like the, uh, the nuts and bolts and, and some other lessons, uh, uh, that have been learned, uh, through the, uh, uh, couple few, uh, campaigns for, for Starlight. Yeah. Well, uh, first let me go over a really valuable lesson I learned back when I owned nightclubs and through raves. Yeah. If you don't have the money to pay for everything up front, don't throw the rave. Um, and there's some truth to that in Kickstarter, I found. Uh, if you don't have the money to uh, pay your artist without, you know, the Kickstarter succeeding, mm-hmm. that's something you need to consider when you talk to your artists. And most artists who are not your best friend in the whole universe, and even ones that are like <laughs> <laughs> um most artists need to know that they're going to get paid. So they won't start the art until after the campaign succeeds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's important. And then you're going to need art for your campaign. So you're probably going to have to, if you're not the artist, you're probably going to have to put up some money to pay your artist to get the art, to get the campaign off the ground. Um, everyone has a little bit a different way of approaching this. 
I know with Starlight, we have a completed script. We know it beginning to end. It's already been through an editor. It's already seen stuff. You know, it's actually been shopped. Um, and uh, so we know that we have everything. There's no there's no fear that the comic won't get done. Okay. Because right? we know the story's done. The story's written. It's completed. It's edited. It's ready to go. Where we get into the next thing is our art. And that's where we might be different, different from someone else. Um uh brett starts pencils immediately as one issue finishes on the next issue then the campaign launches when pencils are complete and he's into coloring okay coloring during the campaign and then it goes to lettering when the campaign completes and ship and gets ready for ships and then it ships so we do see a completed digital issue almost immediately before or after the campaign completes Right. But then it still has to get a couple more touch ups, go through some red lines. And then we get a full copy of it, usually about two weeks after two to three weeks after the campaign. But part of that is that we have the money as individuals to pay for some of the stuff before Kickstarter gets us the money. So that's where we're different. Mm -hmm. Many, many campaigns can't start until they get their check from Kickstarter. Right. So. That, to be clear, guys who are not established professionally like we are and have money as adults because we're successful in our normal careers or in our writing careers and have credit cards. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, most of the guys that are doing this on Kickstarter don't have those things. Um, we do. And so we're able to keep momentum going while we're waiting for that check because we can front that that cash um now going into other people the, i know that uh, one other major series that i am a big fan of and that you know uh their creator and their artists they started their kickstarter after they had already completed their first four issues so mm. they're running two issues ahead um, okay yeah there are even some big people though some bigger names that don't start until after the campaign com- uh so you know it's just really i put this it's up to the team and what your capabilities are. Mm-hmm. And you need to be honest with your backers as well. Like if you can't do this until the Kickstarter money get check gets cleared, you can't even start. Maybe that's something to consider putting in to your campaign for your backers to understand. Otherwise they're going to hit you a month later and you still haven't gotten a check asking where the comic is. Right. I- exactly. Well, and, um, I, I scrolled uh, back to a different page, but like the there's there's uh, verbiage in most Kickstarter campaigns. It's like you know backing isn't buying, you know that that kind of thing. And I think sometimes we get impatient and we get excited. Um, but yeah, and and as, as you're pointing out, Travis, you know different folks operate at different levels. And yeah, it's so every campaign is different. Every creative team is different. Um, But I think what I'm hearing is the takeaway is keep that open communication with your backers and your audience. Um, That way you, you hang on to that equity that you already have instead of just uh, making people mad for no reason. I mean, they're not just fans in the Kickstarter. So this is, let's go back to the Kickstarter thing. Yeah. These aren't just our fans. They're paying a premium for these comics because mm-hmm. they want them. 
they they're part of its creation. Yeah. They're investors in the story, you know, and that's how we look at it. Th these campaigns, we would like to take Starlight and run it again with another publisher. And I think that would be an honor for our backers to be able to say this this comic book that you're just reading for the first time. Well, I was one of the first 300 people who put the money up to pay for yeah. the art for it to get created so it could go to that publisher. And I think that is a pipeline that a lot of us want to create with publishers, you yeah. know, but we can go, Hey, look, um, everything's paid for. Here's a series that's complete, you know, is good. Can you mass produce it and open mm -hmm. our audience up? Because if you can do that, we can go back again because you don't have to put up the money, the upfront costs now for the art and the writing and everything, right? Like you would have had it done if you would have signed us initially. That's the pipeline. I hope, I think a lot of us would like to see, I don't know how it exists yet or who's had it, but, you know, and then they just rerun the series because, yeah, sure, we sold it to 300 people, but they can they have the ability to hit an audience of 20 or 30,000. Exactly. And well, it, money from it because we've already been paid. Right, right. And, and there, there's a punk rock aspect to it. You know, it's like, oh, you know, I, I saw Pearl Jam at the off-ramp, you, right. you know, that, that kind of thing. And there's... There, there's something special to that and like you know just i mean obviously this isn't necessarily a, a comic thing but it's kind of a kickstarter thing um i think a lot of folks forget that like cards against humanity you know one of the one of the most popular games of like the last 10 years is a juggernaut started as a kickstarter campaign yep. so we'll use it afterwards yeah right exactly so i mean there, there's something to be said about getting in on the ground level of something and being part of it at a, at the beginning. Um, let's see. So Nick has a, another question for us. If you could work another book while self-publishing, would it be work for hire or more self-publishing your own work? Multiple irons in the fire. Um, are, are you lucky enough for this to be your full-time job? Question mark. Oh, those are all questions for you. All right. Let's hit them. <laughs> We'll start right. with the first one. Uh, uh, another book. Uh, I would love to work on another book. Um, actually, I have another book almost done, and I've written another book since then. Okay. Uh, so I've written two books just in the time that this has been running. I don't know what I'm doing with them yet. I'll be honest. Uh, it's just how I am. Um, and actually, I have a third book that's somebody else's IP that I'm finishing too, which I'm iffy on if I am a ghostwriter. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> so Meaning you don't know? That. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things where they're like, hey, we want to bring you in as the writer. And then I started writing on it. And then they're like, yeah, your name's not going on the book. I'm like, wait, wait. wait. Oh, I understand. Okay. <laughs> I thought this was a co-book. So I got, I, I might have to go fix that. But um, yeah, uh, I mean, I've done enough work on it where I'm okay with being ghost, but really, really like my name. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, the uh, so I, I keep writing all the time. And then that brings up the next point, which is, are you lucky enough for this to be your full-time job? on accident so okay uh so first of all i don't i haven't made any money from starlight neither uh has any of us honestly uh brett gets paid because brett is a full-time artist he has to make money from right. his art. like he's doing work for boom right now i think he just mined that. uh i know he's doing comicsology and boom um work um so we make sure brett gets paid because it's his livelihood i am literally a professional writer but mm -hmm. I write manuals <laughs> Most sure I've been writing manuals for almost 20 years. Um, so uh, initially, that's how I that's how I got my kick in 
uh, because people were like, well, you can write manuals. I'm like, yeah, but I got these. And uh, I was a journalist before that. So right. Uh, right now, so I've always been able to be lucky enough to get paid for writing, just whether or not I've gotten paid for fun writing. writing yeah. To me. Um, I do like what I write for big corporations and even the government. I, I enjoy it thoroughly. I've written, like, if you ever find my LinkedIn, you see my pedigree, you'll be like, Jesus. You know, like, this is a big, right now I'm uh, actually semi-retired because I made enough from writing and right. stuff. So I've got this year, uh, I've got some money set aside to spend this year. Uh, yeah, actually exactly like n- n- Ikea manuals, to be honest. Um, <laughs> um, so uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, right now I am lucky enough to be able to full-time write Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- and I'm hoping to turn that into something where my name is actually getting attached to IPs that I'm writing and it's no longer this weird, here's a $10,000 check, here's an NDA, shut your mouth, finish the project, and be happy. You know. Yeah. Oh, by the way, if you want to go to con, we'll pay for it, but you can't tell anyone we got you that. And we want you to be able to do it. All right. So, yeah, yeah. I am lucky enough to get paid to be a full-time writer. Just unfortunately, it's not for comic books and film. Or, um, and uh, a side note, the reason that happened, I should say that um, – if you meet professional writers, you always meet us at our best presentation at con stuff. Uh, the truth is almost every writer, you know, that writes for comic books has a real job. There are sure. very few writers who are even with big projects and have had big IPs who live off just their writing. Mm-hmm. Um, they, are, they, they, they do exist. And the ones that do make really good money and you can probably figure out who they are. But there are also a lot who you would think are just at that level. But because of the way that, if you say the professional veil exists, right, everybody looks equal to the audience, but they are not equals behind the veil, if that makes sense. It, that makes sense. There's well, a, a really good example of this is there is one writer I know who works on one of the most famous IPs there is and has major films with big A-list actors. And we're talking like Tom Cruise level stuff. And I loan him money for cigarettes over PayPal. Wow. True story. So, um, you know, and he does cons. I've driven him to cons because he couldn't afford the cab to the con from the airport. And they didn't include it somehow in his package, you know, and, you know, it's just what it is. You know, it's just one of those things. So, so it's, it's just not everyone's going to get rich from writing comic books or uh, books, period. Writers don't. The biggest writers I know always had uh, benevolent benefactors. Yeah. You know, because they they had someone covering them to allow them to grow and build their art. And very few workhorse writers are able to ever achieve that. Yeah, well, and, and and this is kind of apples and oranges, but it just made me made me think of it of, you know, uh, folks getting revenue from sources other than their their writing uh there was a, a interview with ed brubaker recently and he said that he he's made more money off of his blink and you miss it cameo in captain america the winter soldier than he has for creating the winter soldier yeah. you know so that's that that that's just another one of those examples of like you know the the fat checks from actually writing aren't necessarily always there but sometimes they are it's uh yeah it's a, it, it's an interesting world uh for sure um let's see do writers hang out with each other a lot in person or online do you have a little black book to keep your ideas in like 
uh, other writers supposedly do. Man, Nick is Nick is bringing the heat. He he wants to get all of Travis's secrets. He, he's like he's like, give it up, Rave King, give it up. I want all of it. <laughs> I do I do have a little moleskin, and I've been carrying a moleskin for almost twenty years. So yeah, and I do quietly put it under the table in restaurants if I hear something really hilarious one said because uh, that's uh, that's how you learn how to do dialogue. You dialogue comes from real people. When it doesn't come from real people, it sounds like it. Let's be honest. Uh, let's not pick on Zack Snyder really hard, but I'm gonna get. I'm gonna bring you the, the the Snyder Bros. If you watch the first Man of Steel, close your eyes and listen to all the dialogue and tell me who's speaking. Because to me, as a writer, it sounds like one long um, monologue on who Superman is, yeah. then being chopped up and having names attached to different quotes. Sure. Uh, and that's that's when dialogue doesn't sound real because it's it's serving a purpose and not serving a character. Um, let's see. Do right. So do we hang out with each other? Yeah. Zack Snyder. Uh, so you don't have a Vero account, I'm guessing, like Zack. I don't know what a Vero account is, actually. I feel silly. It, it, it's where Zack Snyder hangs out. I, I think he's the only person on this Vero platform. Um because like that that's where like all the hot goss is in terms of like in the in the in the Snyderverse or or whatever. Oh, man, if you ever get a chance, um Maggie May Fish or something like that. Okay. Just did like a whole series on Zack Snyder's career where she just deconstructs the hell out of him. And I was like, God, I feel bad for Zack, but holy God. Snyder Superman doesn't seem interested in empathy or human connection at all. In fact, he seems oblivious to human connection. When the crowd lays their hands on him the way people lay their hands on a religious leader, Superman doesn't even look them in their eyes. He doesn't seem interested in the lives of average people. Instead, Snyder Superman seems drawn to and motivated by displays of power. He's unsatisfied by helping people in need and miffed about what Entertainment Tonight says about the color of his underwear. If a hero doesn't seem to care about human life, then what's the point of them being a hero? Um, oh yeah. yeah. Watch Maggie Mae Fish's uh, YouTube on on the multiple hour-long essays yeah. on Zack Snyder. Uh, so yeah, we try to. Um, there's no better feeling than hanging out with another writer. I, I gotta be honest. I, I, I like it. I have a minor outsider syndrome uh, probably because of my career. Um, right. So I always feel a little awkward around everybody, but everybody's very warm. But you, when you're in a room with other writers, you do feel really at home and it's very, a very good uh, experience. I, I just started meeting up with a writing group every Saturday that I just, man, I look forward to it now. And I used to like, it's just, this is great. So if you meet other writers and it helps once you're published, everybody kind of lets their guard down more. Uh, mm -hmm. because nobody wants to be sapped for information constantly by someone who's never going to do anything. But once you're published, everybody gets a little bit calmer because they know if we're sharing information, they're giving you stuff, it's going to get used. It's a very weird social dynamic. Um, but until you're published and they know you're published, everybody's like, well, I'm wasting kind of all this conversation with, the, I don't know how to explain it. It's really, the other thing is, is you don't get in the, and you don't get into, sometimes when you're a fan, you can bring stuff when you're talking to a writer or if you're not a writer, period. Yeah. Right. You'll say things that just sound really weird. Like I used to want to be an artist, but then I realized it was really hard. So I became a writer instead. Hey. Oh. <laughs> oh, buddy. Yeah. Well, and, and it's kind of interesting kind of how 
the dynamic in comics has evolved and I don't know how it is now uh, in, in contemporary comics, but like I, you know, obviously like in the, in the nineties, it was kind of like the, the age of the rock star artist, yeah, you know, and, and writing really kind of took um, a back seat, but then you get to the, I would say mid aughts, maybe early, early two thousands. And that kind of became like the, the era of the rock star writer. You know, it's like you, well, you, you got the invasion happen. You know, yeah. So Grant and Alan and Neil at their stride, all of a sudden people are like, comics can have good stories, you know, but that also might be a reflection of right before the British invasion, you had stuff like Wildcats five pages in just switches the storyline and you're in a different comic book in the same comic book. And you don't know what happened. Yeah. No offense to Jim Lee. I, I adore you. <laughs> but Wildcats needed help. Yeah. I'm just saying. Um, other, you know, the other thing with that is, uh, there's, there's a, a lot of times, um, and this is true just in writing in general, we write what we think you, you see something you like and you go, I can write that. And then you go write that. So you read J.R. Tolkien, right. And then you go write your own fantasy version of Lord of the Rings, but with your own character names and generically. And yeah. I think that happens in every creative industry. Someone goes, oh, I can do that better with my own character ideas. And what if they did this and this and this, you know, and there's a lot of that derivativeness. If yes. You know. Yeah. And uh, I think that artists didn't understand that they weren't bringing anything new. And there was nothing to tell them not to do that because they could throw anything at the wind and they got money, you know. So you you end up with uh, uh, you end up with wildcats and um wet works um i mean i, I don't know how yeah. many x-men ripoffs at that time I, and I, i'm not trying to be mean i'm just saying like the the teams i mean even yeah. new mutants and uh x-force x-factor like it's basically derivative of x-men because yeah. all these guys read x-men and said i can do that with my own versions of the x-men right and then they just wrote comics and another thing sometimes i think during that era uh there was a lot of um, misogyny with the women and less about the story. Yeah. I'm trying not to say it was soft core, but there was a little bit of a soft core element during that period for teenage boys. Who Quite so. Get their hands on real things. And uh, I think in, after the British invasion of stories, we see a lot less of pure spandex superhero females, mm -hmm. to be honest. Um I think that that's still a thing that happens. Uh, you can go on Kickstarter and find a lot of really terrible comics that are doing really well. And I have nothing against their art or their comics, but they are literally boob comics. Right. You know, and good for them. But that, that, because that happened, if those guys wanted at that time to, to make better stories, there was nothing, there was no feedback to push back against them to tell them to stop. Initially. Yeah. I think they had to mature naturally and maybe something happened that guys, I don't want to mention any names, but some of the biggest yeah. artists of our time who at that time were also artists slash creators slash writers. Right? <laughs> sure. Um, I think a lot of them didn't have that pushback because it was, there was just so much gold. Well, yeah. Well, and that's the thing too. It's like, you know, it, we, we discussed this uh, a little bit before we went live. It's like, you know, some of those other uh, Kickstarter campaigns are wildly successful mm -hmm. and it, it, 
and that's the response to criticism of those projects. It's like, well, if it's so awful, why is it making so much money? Yeah, why are they getting forty thousand dollars? And literally, there's no story here. You know, yeah, and it's going to be a one-off issue. They always make them. There's a couple of them that are serial issue one, and yeah, still super successful. You know, and even though their stories never have an issue two. You know, so yeah, but they have a fan base and they follow them. And they keep reading issue one over and over again. You know, and then you look in their comments and people are like, when are you going to do issue two of blah, blah, blah. And I feel bad for those people, you know, because I don't think issue two is ever coming. Yeah. I'm not trying to knock the writer or the artist. I just don't think they know how to go any further. And, and then sure enough, they, they can do another campaign, do another issue one and have it be just as successful as that is that other one. It's, it might even be the same story. Not to knock sure. another group, but there that happens. Yeah. Other creators who've literally put the same book out, the same story, three or four times now on Kickstarter and have wild fan base. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I think we might be talking about the the same group, but I I think there's there's something to be said also about like tapping into an audience. You know, good good, bad, or indifferent. It's like you know, um, chuds apparently have a lot of money and are very eager to spend it. And you know what? If that's what they want to spend their money on, that's that's fine. But where I start taking umbrage with that philosophy is when they use the success of those campaigns as an indictment on the mainstream comic industry mm -hmm. uh that's that that's that's where it gets a little iffy for my taste i'm i mostly live in let live but then it's just like wait a sec now <laughs> there's 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 context uh to be had here um so looking at the time we've uh, uh we've been going for a few we've gone over well, I mean, it, it's it's a podcast and a live stream. We we can talk as much or as long as uh, as as much as the day is long. But I think before uh, we kind of get uh, maybe take some more questions and kind of have some more discussion, because this is fun. This is uh, um, th this is really great. Uh, uh, trying to avoid staying out of trouble with various fandoms. But um, I, I do kind of want to talk about uh, Starlight a little more if we can, because the, this is coming into the final week of the campaign for issue number three. And I was wondering if we can touch on um, maybe what makes this particular campaign unique, like in terms of like, you know, uh, backer rewards, uh, things like that, more or less. The reason for the season why we're here is like, say, hey, man, if you have not backed uh, issue three of Starlight, here's your opportunity. Why aren't you doing it? Why do I need to back this book? That, that kind of thing. <laughs> I am going to say something real quick that Nick said. I think sure, Rob of course, did, did a cover for us and blow the, the roof off our comic. I'm going to be honest. I think, of course, it would. I have, a, I have, a, I have a, a soft spot for Rob. Okay, um, he's actually a wonderful person. I've met him once, but we we share somebody as without knowing each other very well. We've run into each other once. I've mentioned that we both know the same person in the industry, and we're both close to that person. So, and he he knows business. Like he's one of the few guys in the industry that. This other person who's really strong in the business straight up told me, you can put Rob in a board room with the board of directors and he'll pitch clean every time. He's he's very good. Uh, I don't ever knock Rob, even though sometimes I didn't like his art back in the day. Okay, so. Let's <laughs> <laughs> get out there. All right, talk about my comic. Um, and I would kill to have a Rob co cover, to be honest. I, I just, just, just because he's so cool and I think he would have a lot of fun. Um, I try not to knock people that I think are just really where they belong. He deserves everything he gets. He 
really has brought a lot to this industry, yeah. including a Levi's commercial, if I remember correctly. Oh, yeah. So how long have you been drawing comic books? So I was about seven years old, little kid. What your parents think about it? They hate They hate Oh, yeah. After I, I got a job and they saw that you can make a living out of third day, you'll hear no complaints anymore. And you created X-Force? Mm-hmm. So what is the drawing of? This is the Spike Man. And what's this right here? This is the camera on top of your head that will record the wrongdoings of others. So, Rob, have you had any formal art training? No. Just uh, a lot of imagination, I think. Wait, so so I say it and then look down, or just open it and say, "Fly button." <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. Let's take a look at let's look at the rewards. Sure. So uh, rewards. There was a there was a new lesson on rewards. If you scroll down, I have pictured rewards too. I do them both. So oh, good, good. In our campaign, the ship itself is actually called the Storm Runner. If you were to translate it. Okay. Uh, I don't think that comes out in the comic, um, but it's called the Storm Storm Runner, and it doesn't originate with any of these characters. They this is not their ship. Oh, uh, I think that does come out in the comic. So I'm just spoilers. Um, you learn a lot about these the space pirate cats and how they get ships and what it's all about. Like, that does come out, uh, but the ship's designs are influenced heavily by um, Forbidden Planet. Okay. So if you look, see how the hallways are just way too big for these characters? Yeah. And they're lit wrong because these are not the aliens that exist on this ship. All the controls, the doorways, everything Brett took into consideration to make the ship um, feel like something made for a race that's no longer on the ship. Mm -hmm. That different Mm -hmm. anatomy than anything on the ship. And that's one of the fun things about it. So I just want to point that out because it's one of my favorite things about the, his design on this. That's a really cool detail for sure. Love that. It's supposed to feel massive. Oh my gosh. I mean, again, just the, just the, the detail there. There's a little, I'm going to kill something. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Go mess you up. I love it. Well, just real quick for any of your listeners, the $4 digital issues uh, once you once you pick up that first four dollar digital issue and you want to get the first two issues, they're four dollars each. You click it, you click add-ons, and you add the other two issues. Uh, we're trying to use add-ons with Kickstarter now to make the rewards less complicated. Yeah, so having a bunch of add-on rewards. I'm sorry, a bunch of rewards where there's different levels with different previous issues. You just you hit the four dollar digital or you hit the eight dollar physical, and then you go add the previous issues. Oh, that's really cool. That's really, really cool and very helpful. I mean, especially something like this, that's a, a serial in that, like, you know, cause I, I would imagine that, that some of that potential audience confusion could be like, well, Hey, this is issue three. Uh, what about the other issues? It's like, no worries, my dude. It's a, it's all here. You know, you can, you can add all that on. So it's, uh, um, that's, that's a very helpful thing that the Kickstarter has, uh, has added lately. Yeah. Yeah. The new, some of the older guys were like, uh, Travis, I don't know if you want to do that. And the newer guys are like, isn't that how you're supposed to do it? You know? So like, so I'm kind of caught in the in between where I'm like, I'm, I'm going to try it guys. But the older guys are like, don't do it. Don't do it. Hmm. See funny. <laughs> All right. So we'll keep going down. Festival yeah. Packs just the, the festival packs, just the base pack in my opinion, because you get the, you get the bookmark, the, the the digital copy, the physical issue, and and the pinup that comes with every with that pack, and that's that's probably the most popular pack in my opinion. Yeah. And then did we get to that Lee Moyer print. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> yeah, it looks so good. I just got told that I underpriced it, and I felt bad, but I thought I thought it was reasonable. You know, 
trying to make that reasonable. Yeah. Uh, so you get both the regular cover and the Lee Moyer. And then again, you can add other issues if you want when you do that. And then we have a retail bundle. Now we add these, we do sell these. Um, comic book shops are slowly picking up on mm-hmm. Kickstarter stuff. So if you can get a shop to pick you up, that is awesome. And so having these here is to show them, hey, we've got you if you need them. And uh, you get them fairly cheap so you can resell them for about eight bucks a pop or six bucks. A night. Sure, sure. So we'll go down here a little bit further. And then we have these mini prints. Ah, yes. I thought I had one sitting out to show you, but I guess it But the mini prints are uh, the Brett art that Brett does. And mm-hmm. in this case, you have Stan Lee and then Ron, Ron Swanson. Swanson. Thank you. Yeah. And then uh, Stephen King <laughs> covered in mold. And then the, the dude from The Office, because I don't watch mm-hmm. The Office. Everyone harasses me about that. <clears throat> it's fine. You're fine. I don't fine. watch Parks and Recs, and I don't watch The Office, and nobody lets me live that down. Not that I haven't tried. Sure. Uh, I, I think they're funny. They're just not my kind of funny. I, you know when you can recognize that something's good, but it's just not your thing? Yeah. Like, I, I mean, know I, Glenn Campbell is great, but I'm not going to listen to Glenn Campbell. Exactly. I was going to say, I, I feel I, I have very uh, similar tastes in like music to where it's like, you know, I could appreciate the artistry, not necessarily my jam. Yeah. You know, that, that I, kind of thing. Nick, I will try community. Uh, at some point, I am interested in trying it. I just haven't had, gotten around. Uh, I write and work so much. I, I don't have a lot of time to do shows. And, yeah. Uh, my partner uh, only watches Bollywood movies. I watch a lot oh, wow. of uh, Sharka, uh, Sharka Khan a lot. That, that sounds know. awesome. Um, yeah, Rick and Morty, I had the same trouble with, actually. I had a hard time getting into Rick and Morty. I only recently got into yeah. it. And it was because Brett actually compared me to Rick. Um Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's favorable or I not. Yeah. <laughs> Wubba dub dub! Right. Hey, sorry, I mean to cut your show, man. Anyways, okay, so mini prints are awesome, and you can buy those separately, too. You can add them to any of the other levels. And then down here, you can just pick up everything. That's everything. So so this at the $55 level, that's that's everything? The whole series, plus this variant cover, plus the mini prints. It's my favorite level. Now, this is the most unique thing we did for this comic coming up, mm-hmm. for this issue. And this is, Brett will sit down for $200 and paint, hand paint a cover just for you. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's the first time we've ever tried this. Uh, I don't know if anyone else has done it. I think some people have tried it since. Uh, one of our friends picked it up. So I don't know if he got the idea from us or he just said the same idea at the same time. But yeah, Brett will actually make you a custom art cover for you. And uh, it does That's include awesome. uh, all three in digital issues and a physical number three on top of it. But you do need to pick up the other two issues physically as an add-on. Uh, just oh, okay. running out of money quick. It starts being, stops being profitable. Right. The last one we have is the $300 user raver. That's always been a big one for us, actually. Uh, that one's actually really good. It comes out in the, the following issue. So we've had we've actually sell quite about three or four per issue so far. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it doesn't sound like a lot, but it's three or four pages added to the comic, right? Yeah. With your imagery in it at $300 a pop. This is still a pretty good thing. Now, I'm going to be honest, rewards are troubling for us because we really only know comic books. Yeah. But I will tell you for issue four, we've been spending the last several weeks learning how to do some of these other cool things like fancy pins and action figures. 
We just didn't know how to do that. It wasn't available to us. And that goes back to what we talked to almost an hour ago. And yeah. when you're first starting out in this, um, there are guys who know how to do that stuff, but you're going to have to learn it yourself. Right, right. And you only get to, that stuff only really kind of gets unlocked for you as an achievement after you've already published something. So your first book is unlikely going to have any of those cool things that are now an expectation for most backers in Kickstarter that are part of the community. They expect the bookmarks, they expect, they expect action figures. And that's one of the things I think that's going to hold back a person doing their first series. Yeah. Well, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I think you mentioned this in, in one of our previous interviews, but like the more experience and success you have in Kickstarter, Kickstarter themselves makes more tools available for, for uh, return creators, right? Uh, a better way to put it without getting myself into a huge another hour long mess. Uh huh. The more they're willing to work with you to make the tools do things. Ah, okay. Uh, so that other thing you're talking about, the idea of maybe a publisher kind of opening up spot mm -hmm. does not exist in Kickstarter. So don't get your hopes up. Okay. Um, you have to recreate that with third parties. All those publishing tools that you see, uh, you know, you see those bigger campaigns have, or those com companies that think, you know, that are kind of like Kickstarter publishers, they're creating everything else on their back end through third party third party applications such as Backerkit, um, uh, uh, Mailchimp, um, you know, things like that are covering yeah. up and picking up where the tools don't exist to do a serial series in Kickstarter. So. What does happen is once you're established is they become a lot more friendly with you and you can speak to them more frequently and they'll help kind of guide you through their own processes and policies to make sure you are successful without stepping on. Because there are some rules that actually kind of break the ability to do serial, you know, and that's something we all w would like to talk to Kickstarter about, but it's not something that has happened yet. But, you know, uh, like I said, Kickstarter didn't come into this thinking they were going to have serial Kickstarter. Right, right. You know, and how much money would they really make for making that their platform capable for that versus, you know, how much would they spend? Mm -hmm. So in a lot of the things that we would think would be, oh, it would be really good if Kickstarter did this. Yeah, for about 20 of us, right? Yeah, yeah. Who are pulling in 10000 so maybe two or three thousand dollars every couple months for them it may not gonna happen you know we might have <laughs> party tools for that so just be aware of that when you're coming in that there isn't a magic set that opens up to you the minute you should. yeah very very cool good yeah, stuff I hope would be. yeah yeah that's <laughs> disappointed well it, it, it's interesting though how Kickstarter has kind of learned and grown with this growing and expanding creator community. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like folks are creating things, you know, that, that are kind of uh, outside the bounds of what the, the platform was really intended to be, you know, like we, we just spend a lot of time talking about, you know, uh, it wasn't designed for like serialized projects, for example. So yeah, it's, it, it's, it, it's interesting in this current landscape, and I think the um, the evolution has been accelerated due to the pandemic, but and 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 folks doing other new creative projects. But it's 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 a fascinating time in this creative space 
because uh, you know uh, just even what like what I've seen in the podcasting space like I mean a year ago uh, you me and Greg were were talking on Zencaster um, today we're using a, a a video live stream platform that really that that was something I never thought I would even mess with and now it's kind of like weirdly industry standard um you know all all these new uh uh tools and and with new tools comes new expectations and yeah it's just it it's it, it's been fascinating to watch how the creator landscape has has changed so drastically in like these last 18 months yeah the pandemic kind of forces to speed that process up i think yeah yeah, well, and, and as well as accelerated um, different types of models of, uh, yeah, because like, it, it's so weird to think about now, but there was a time like in the in the early to mid uh, pandemic where mainstream comics had stopped. You know, there there was no new comics for, for a stretch there. And even some of those reverberations are still kind of uh, uh, being felt, whereas stuff like this you know where where it was more uh creator owned direct to consumer stuff platforms like this and projects like this kind of flourished oh yeah it was interesting too is when we started out we hit right at the beginning of the pandemic mm -hmm. and we were told not to do it you know they're like pump the brakes pump the brakes but we were in a weird position where like you said mainstream comics had stopped our artist is a mainstream artist so we were like he's got greg and i were fine like we were in other industries where yeah. pump the brakes, we got other ways, you know, guys like Brett, our friend, you know, our artists, we are all ready to go. And all of a sudden, you know, right before the convention we were going to launch at, because we were going right. to Emerald City, you know, and have a nice big launch and big banner and everything. And Brett really needed income. And now he needed more income because all his gigs flopped off. Yeah. So we went for it and bam, we hit, we hit 10,000 plus on our first campaign. And, and I, I have been told since then that's unheard of. And maybe that was too good. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, you know, it's a hard thing to come back to, you know, but yeah. uh, I, I'm glad we did. But like you said, Kickstarter is providing what uh, I would say Kitchen Sink Press did in the 90s for. Comedy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got excited. I got to be honest, Mike. I, I yeah. when, your show so we do a, a tour of shows right now we're trying to expand that so we're not doing the same shows all the time but yeah yeah i got super excited because you and i actually have a really good time talking mm. and we both like transformers you a little more than me because i just do not have that lore as strong as you do sure one of my best friends i don't know if you've noticed but i want to see me post something really unique in transformers my best friend i used to throw raids with is a huge transformer collector oh get out of here yeah and so like uh, his collection, he has big giant glass cases in a room, you know, those big display for glass cases of just all his stuff. Yeah. Uh, I picked him up the uh, Ghostbusters Optimus one year. Oh, nice. San Diego. Like it's just stuff like that's really big. So when, when your show came up and you're like, Hey, can, you, can you do this? I was like, Yes. <laughs> because honestly i know i'm gonna have a good time talking with you well i appreciate you taking the time it is, it is always fun uh kicking with you and it's always fun kicking it with greg too but i i i like that in our interviews that we've done for each uh subsequent uh campaign for uh for starlight the dynamic's been different like you know first it was you me and greg and then it was uh you greg and brett and me 
And so now, and now it's just you and me and that's, uh, that it's super cool. You know, it's, it's nice to just kind of, um, uh, talk about things in, in different, uh, different dynamics. Yeah. Our, our, um, so, so Nick is a huge Transformers fan also. He's like, haha, so do I, but I need a lot more of those, uh, Detolf cases. And that's, and that's kind of funny. The, the Ikea, uh, glass yeah. case is has really just kind of become like the industry standard workhorse uh, display case. I've got two of them myself, and and yeah, I mean they're they're uh, they're they are really a uh, great uh, case here. But you know, keeping it in the in the realm of everybody's favorite robots in disguise, we were we were talking a little bit before uh, before we started recording about the Cybertron spree and. That. And that that was one of those things where, like, you know, you and I had no idea that the other was like such a such a fan of them. And I I, I think they're great. Their 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 whole thing is just really awesome and a whole lot of fun. Oh man! And their cover of um, Led Zeppelin's uh, is it "Immigrant Song." Immigrant Song, yeah. Epic. That and that actually went legit viral. Um, year year before last. And so much so to where folks were sharing it with me, like, oh man, the, these these folks are dressed up like Transformers, but you know, uh, but man, the the song is just great. I mean, like the um, the uh, the gal uh, RC, she's uh, I mean, she has got some killer pipes yeah. to where it's like if anybody is familiar with that Transformers the movie soundtrack, you know, a lot of it is kind of like hair metal of the eighties, and she does all of those parts, you know, all of like you know the the deep throated high pitched wail and makes makes a lot of those uh, metal covers that they do just just phenomenal and and to hear her do a, a riff on robert plant was just just really great i'm not a huge zeppelin guy but i really really enjoyed that i thought they did uh did a great job with that yeah i, I if they tour this year and you go out i'm probably gonna see if i can get tickets too it's worth it well and and it's interesting because they they are in cyber toronto and we know uh canada is kind of going through uh, uh their own set of difficulties with with regards to the rona and lockdowns so i mean hopefully they they're able to hit the road but yeah i'm just i'm not sure i mean it's already been rescheduled a couple times already but yeah fingers uh uh, uh fingers crossed um so i i guess uh to to uh, get closer to closing out because i you know uh yeah. we've, we've all got obligations and i don't want to keep you here all night but this this has been tons of fun um i i forget and in our conversations um how do you feel about that about that 1986 transformers movie do you do you have um um any, yeah yeah that that uh, that time that the the truck robot died Made you oh sad. 
No, it it wasn't even that. It was um that 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 messed me up too. I had nightmares yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah. Nightmare fuel. Oh my god, I had him, and he was my favorite transformer for years. I love Jeeps. Mm. He dies too in that sequence, and uh, then Ironhide's face catching fire and spewing out flames. Yeah. Jesus. Holy gosh. So uh, we went to go see um, Karate Kid 2, I think. Yes. Yeah, that was the same year. We're all playing at the same time. Yep. Yep. No, we went and saw Flight of the Navigator, and I wanted to see Transformers the movie. And then I went home and I had nightmares that Optimus Prime died and turned into a bunch of matchsticks. Yeah, basically. (laughs) He turned super gray. But then I went and saw the movie finally, like a couple days later, and then Optimus Prime died, and it just left me scarred. Yeah. Uh, I was I was seriously wrecked by that film. And then it just takes such a tonal shift because all of a sudden, like Monty Python's happening. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like Omnicron and like the this huge deep voice and like you know, um, and then all of a sudden, like Spock is talking. He's it was a bad guy here. And then, like, I don't want to say I didn't like Rodimus. Yeah, but Hot Rod should have never gotten the Matrix. Right. Um, he wasn't. He was a character that didn't exist before the film. That's one of the first problems. Right. Even as a kid, you go, "There's something wrong with this narrative." Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. I'm like, I'm, I was like, I think it was nine or ten, and I was like, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, you know, and then the tonal shift didn't make sense to me. I think if you were to nail a moment for the first time where I started really real understanding narrative, it would have been my confusion at Transforms the movie. Yeah, yeah, and tone because I was like, it starts out all like, ooh, cool, like heavy metal, you know, like like the movie Heavy Metal. It starts yeah, literally. Like yeah, and then and then you have this happy moment. Okay, we're all happy. Music's positive, and then people's faces are exploding that you hear about and you've grown up with. Right. And then some jerk off you've never seen or met before becomes the leader out of nowhere with nothing behind him. Yeah. Right. And then, and then like, and then we're like on a junk planet singing a song. <laughs> well, while Weird Al Yankovic is playing in the, in, in the background. Yeah, it's crazy. Wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and that's such a, it was so, I remember leaving the theater and the only other time I ever felt like that, I, I'm going to be honest was conflicted because there's stuff I really liked about it. Like I really love about that movie. Right. And it makes me want to watch it again, but I never felt that again until, uh, the last Jedi. That was the only other time I felt that I left the last Jedi with that same conflicted. Yeah. Interesting. Some of the same crap. Yeah. That that's a fair point. That that's, that's interesting. Well, and and I bring, I bring all this up one, because like I, I have, incredible affection for that movie but uh this this week um to commemorate the 35th anniversary um the shout factory is releasing it on uh 4k blu-ray you just said 35 years i I did 35 years and yeah so now i'm just gonna jump off the ledge not really but uh figuratively uh but yeah no so like so like there's there's like a new 4k coming out um a whole line of action figures and you know it's really just kind of like reinvigorated that uh that that interest in in that story but also and i I wanted to bring this up because you know being a being a uh writer yourself you know i uh one of one of the various deconstruction uh superhero uh, stories that I mentioned earlier was uh, Robert Kirkman's Invincible, 
and that's that's been doing really well on the Amazon. But I've um, um, I, I heard an interview with him where uh, Kirkman actually cites his experience and trauma uh, watching Transformers the movie as a huge influence on his writing style. And if you take a look at say uh, uh, Walking Dead um, and how they're eager to cross off main characters or even like some of the, the uh, you know, the, the obviously the ultra violence in, in invincible. It's not, it's not that it's not that difficult to believe. And I just, I, I thought that was uh, that, that, that seems to be my interesting factoid for the month where I'm like, yeah, that's, I never thought of it that way before, but that totally checks out. Yeah, that makes sense. Also, hmm. no, I have it, but I am friends with Corn Howe who was the artist for Transformers. Nice. Yeah. So, Nick jumped in the chat here and asked if uh, Travis has uh, uh, written a Transformers, and is is that is that something you would you would be interested in? Oh, you yeah. want want to take I a would, crack at the robots would, in disguise? I would totally take a crack at robots in the Scott in disguise, and I would in the skies <laughs> in, in disguise. Yeah, yeah, in disguise. Uh, but I would, you know, if I did, so it goes back to the thing where uh, I wouldn't make it to where it's the end of the Autobot story, kind of cycle again i would actually just write a new story yeah like episode of the show with a beginning and a middle of the end that doesn't have anything to do with it possibly destroying all the autobots and cybertron or something sure you know or the the overall thing i would i would definitely write it different i you know um just side note i liked bumblebee oh the movie yeah oh yeah like tons of fun promise as a kid i figured in a lot of ways, that was the Transformers movie. I thought I was going to go see. Yeah, that that's I I think I think that's more than fair. <laughs> uh, well, um, oh, it, I I was I was going. Sometimes I segue in a way that works. Other times I don't. But I did want to loop this back around all the way as we as we wrap up here. Nick had asked us something like like an hour ago, saying like, "Would you uh, would you like to have an?" animated movie or live action movie made out of the comic obviously uh referring to uh to starlight there animated rave opera there it is that's what i want i want a rave like i'm talking like get derude have him build a score with lyrics by somebody from disney sure right and animation that feels like rock and roll you know um uh and uh, it'd be a retelling right but you know, if I just if we just delivered Starlight as an animated story, you read the comic, right? What, yeah. I, what new am I bringing to you? But no one's ever done a rave opera, yeah, an animated rave opera. I'm just yeah, Starlight genetic opera. Oh <laughs> no, <laughs> I, that's, that's what I would want to do. I would kind of watch that. I just think it would be a lot of fun to have that that music. You know, no one's done it, and I don't know how to do it, and that's what makes it awesome. Yeah. Like, if you're not, if it's not going to shake stuff, then it's not art. It's just them making an animation of the things we've already created. And that's fine. I mean, if someone did that, I, I'd sign off. I, I'm not going to lie. I had my agent ask me years ago. He said, this is actually was, the, he told me later was a deciding factor in signing me. Mm. But, you know, if I sell this and it becomes big, are you, are you wanting to be, are you going to be uh, uh, really involved? Do you want to, I said, no, once you sell it, it's theirs. I don't want anything to do with it. He goes, oh, that's the right answer. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I would sell Starlight and be okay with it. But man, if I could get a rave opera that was animated, like with just like 
you know, those colors that Brett brought to us, you know, yeah. um, and just like, just insane music. And I don't know how to incorporate singing into it. I just want to see someone with a lot more strength and power behind them in the knowledge, experimental knowledge. Try it. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, Travis, this has been a ton of fun. We we got to do it again, and let's let's do it again sometime before the the next Kickstarter campaign for uh, for issue four. You know, kind of maybe uh, maybe get some more of the family together. Because um, yeah, I think I think that would be a lot of fun and kind of uh, keep that momentum going. So, folks of you that that are out there watching, uh, thanks for hanging out with us. But the the main takeaway I would like you to have is one, back the project if you, if you haven't yet, or if you've already backed, maybe consider uh, uh, stepping your pledge up to one of the the higher tiers. Um, yeah, yeah, we're kind of looking to do what every two, three months, give or take. Oh, we um, the address. What's that? The address, uh, www.starlightkickstarter.com. And it's Starlight is S-T-A-R-L-I-T-E. Like light beer. Everyone loves like, it. Like light beer. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, I mean, so like, so as you're listening, like, so like our friend Nick, tell a friend to tell a friend to check out the project. Cause I think at this point, you know, you, you guys have built a pretty decent fan base of, of the stargazers, but we need more stargazers as, as we get to, you know, going into the second half of the project. So I think that's kind of my call to action to my audience is kind of, you know, it, it's cool that you dig the project, but see if you can kind of, get somebody else to check it out also so uh, again that's uh that's starlightkickstarter.com still got about as of uh when we're here on sunday afternoon evening wherever uh whatever your municipal time zone is got about 10 days left on the campaign um it'll be about a week by the time the uh the podcast audio drops um if you've been uh, on the fence, whether you want to back the project or not, you know, because it's already successfully funded, still jump on it because this is your opportunity to get the book, to support the campaign. And if you want more of this, well, then uh, then you got to, um, you know, kick in. And uh, I was I was trying to figure out a, uh, a Snoop Dogg reference. They all got the cups, but they ain't chipped in. But that 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 analogy does not quite work here. But you get you get the idea. Laid back With my mind on my money and my now money on my mind that I got me some seed from Gina Everybody got their cups but they ain't chipped in Now these types of things happen all the time You gotta get yours before I gotta get mine Um so uh, uh travis before uh before we part ways for now uh could you let folks know where we can uh find you out on the internets and how we can connect with you out on the on the social medias and any uh any other remaining plugs that we might not have missed now now would be the time to do so uh, you, well you can i mean if you search for webworks w-e-b-b-w-e-r-x in any social media platform, I'm probably going to pop up because that's my old rave name and rave promotion stuff. In fact, if you do an image search for that, you'll find a bunch of pictures of raves and ravers and me. Um, so yeah, W-E-B-B-W-E-R-X is my uh, Twitter, my Instagram, and my 
Facebook is Travis Rave <laughs> Web. <laughs> uh, and it's easier just to follow me than it is to add me because I think I'm back to Max Friends again because it does that. But I do have a fan page for Starlight. So at Starlight Comic Book for both Twitter, Instagram, and I believe Facebook. Uh, yes. WebWorks fan page that's been around for years with a couple thousand followers. But uh, yeah, so any of those locations will bring you back to us. And then we have a Starlight comicbook.com which uh was where we kind of archive all the stuff from the previous kickstarters and stuff like that and if cons ever come back that's where our cons go sweet very very cool well again travis i i appreciate you taking the time and the extra time to you know kind of talk about the inner workings of, of kickstarter and and even a little transformers chat for uh for that portion of the audience as well but that will wrap things up for this week's episode thank you so much for hanging out with us and watching and for listening a special uh, shout out to nick for all of the incredible questions you're you're the mvp of this week's episode um and if and if you want to listen to my podcast, uh, Mike Seibert Radio, and all of my past shows, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever the heck else you listen to your podcasts. And you could check out the full show archive out on SoundCloud, five years and over 300 episodes worth of shows there. And uh, join us sometime again in the future for another Mike Seibert Radio live stream out on Twitter, YouTube, Twitch, and Facebook Live. Like, share, rate, and review the show. Let us know what you like and what you'd like to hear more of in the future. For Mike Seibert Radio, my name is Mike. That's, uh, that's Travis. And until next time, get that vax when you're eligible, wear your mask, wash your hands, and more than anything, make good choices. You've been listening to the Mike Seibert Radio Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching at Mike Seibert Radio. Email us at MikeSeibertRadio at gmail.com. The spelling on that, of course, is S-E-I-B-E-R-T. Call into the voicemail hotline at 231-224-MIKE. Once again, that's 231-224-6453. Special thanks to Michael Geisler for our theme music. For more like it, check out ByDoorMusic.com. This has been a Mike Seibert Radio Production.